One of the features that is uh, taking place in the uh, Dharma community in uh, 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 recent times is a certain expansion of focus and uh, priorities. And firstly, if I may, I would just like to speak of this as by way of introduction to the place of the heart in the teachings. And the, one of the criticisms which has been um, said over, over the years, particularly with regard to the tradition of insight meditation and its relationship to the totality of Dharma, is that easily it can be dry. This is one of the words which has been brought up with some concern and thoughtfully, and something which uh, we as, as teachers have uh, discussed and explored and spoken about with each other uh, regularly uh, over the years. And one of the concerns that people had, and in fact Guy and I spoke about this together this morning, is that in making the uh, teachings uh, available, quite a lot which is generally goes under the label of being religious, is out. And it's a little bit of the, uh, perhaps, motivation, some of us would say, in let's get to the peas and forget the pod, so to speak. So people have uh, uh, said that they miss some of the features of Buddhism, which would include uh, uh, devotion and bowing, which would include uh, chanting, um, candles, incense, uh, rituals, etc. And those of you who are familiar with uh, uh, the teachings in, in the tradition know, for the most part, there is very little of that. And so concern has been expressed from time to time of the world of just sitting and walking can be missing something, which is the matter of the feeling or, or the heart level, which uh, devotion, ceremony and ritual is intended to inculcate, intended to bring out. Recently, I was meeting with one of the senior Dharma students and we were discussing one of the passages in the text. And the uh, Buddha took uh, the view and expressed many times that ritual, ceremony uh, and clear and religious forms he didn't give support to and he said he didn't have trust in for the reason that they were not conducive to liberation. Others may say di differently, but this is just the Buddha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so when that is largely 
to a great extent uh, out, and there the obvious forms of religion um, are out as well. Nevertheless, the matter of the heart and the place of the heart in the teachings is vital, is indispensable, and is inseparable from the practices and the explorations. Sometimes people will say, well, seems like the teachings don't make a great deal of reference to heart. You know, speaking so regularly and frequently of being mindful, of observing change, of seeing the characteristics of existence, uh, looking at where our faith and trust is, at attending to the tendencies of mind and the clinging and their habits and the kinds of thought as uh, Shada was uh, speaking to about. So sometimes, what about the place of the heart? But the matters of the heart in the teachings and in the communications are vital and utterly absorbed into the body of the teachings. And that showing itself in references, of course, through the tradition and the early texts and practices to... Uh, joy, happiness, well-being, integration of uh, heart and mind, kindness, compassion, um, generosity, the capacity to give, uh, the feeling of oneness, the love of silence, um, the appreciation for stillness, the joy at listening to the Dharma, many, many aspects are all features of the expression and manifestation of the heart in the teachings sometimes spoken of with great frequency and sometimes less so. But even, and having said that, there wasn't always that kind of recognition within the Dharma community. And I think two of the changes, and I'm talking with Guy today, I, I felt there were kind of groundbreaking changes in a, in a certain kind of way. And one of them was the bringing in of and prioritizing the practices of uh, metta, of loving kindness, and the importance of that, and making the loving kindness meditations a real feature of the Dharma. It used to be, well, for some of us like me, it still is, but it used to be a kind of 10 minutes at the end of the retreat, if there was time. And, and the changes that have gone on is that people are nourishing and practicing and, um, it was a joke, um, explore. <laughs> Sometimes uh, your poor cousins from England and yourselves are uh, separated by a different kind of humor. So, <laughs> and what's been happening within the, the, the community in the matter of heartfulness is the introduction and the use of heartfulness, loving-kindness um, meditations, particularly as a wonderful and invaluable uh, vehicle towards, in going deep into oneself, towards feeling the heart so that it's as though when one hears the word mindfulness, one also correspondingly, so to speak, hears the word heartfulness. That the mindfulness isn't dry, it's, it's nourished by respect. It's nourished through interest. It's n nourished through wonder or through attentiveness. And therefore the two genuinely have 
a real relationship um, and hopefully moment to moment one with each other. But of course, in the movement in which heartfulness is entering into the field of um, mindfulness, the quality of both must and does change. So that sometimes the sense of being mindful, we don't pick up what the feelings are, whether pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere uh, in between. So the quality of the feeling life has its own ebb and flow, just as the quality of the mindfulness does as well. And there can be too much of a demand upon ourselves with our mind or with our heart that somehow one or other ought to be consistently present. Buddha has a wonderful statement, which is a kind of saving grace for some of us. He says in the, the foremost talk, uh, in each of the primary areas of mindfulness and awareness in life, which is body, feelings, states of mind and the Dharma, after each one, in speaking of mindfulness, and therefore mindfulness, heartfulness, speaking of it, he says, to the extent necessary, to the extent necessary, in order that we can abide freely and independently in this world. Sometimes, people misunderstand in the Dharma, especially in the Vipassana community, and what can happen is there is such an intensification of preoccupation with being mindful, it exaggerates it, it puts a pressure on it, and one is trying or forcing oneself to try to be mindful every single moment of the day. And when it goes too far and it moves mindfulness into an extremism of position, one is actually unmindful of the influences that one is bearing upon oneself. One is unaware of what one is doing in relationship to the mindfulness itself. Striving, pushing hard, trying to make sure one is doing it right. And as one person speaking to me uh, today in the one-to-one the -one pointed out, sometimes people, in coming into this kind of uh, dharma from the outside, have learnt, and I agreed wholeheartedly with the person, have learnt how, as it were, to do things right in terms of methodology. We're very good students really applied their mind to what they're doing to achieve certain results. And therefore had a certain degree of mental concentration, listened very well to the instructions, followed them through very, very precisely, and are in danger of missing the point. Doing it technically all correctly, and precisely, have got a good training in secular life through university and um, work about concentrating on the job. And the same mindset is then brought in here, and because it may have succeeded rather well in terms of uh, society's val values, one thinks, ah, well, I bring this, not necessarily consciously, I apply it here, same situation, and therefore I will achieve whatever. Anyone wonders? 
Why is my practice so dry? Why is it that um, I hear the words of love and warmth and, and depth and contentment and, and peace? And I don't seem to have access to feel any of that. And what I'm actually experiencing is plodding in and out of this meditation all with alarming regularity, planting my butt on the cushion or uh, uh, on, 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 the, on the chair and every ten minutes compulsively turning my wrist and back. And this becomes my day-to-day -day meditation. And when one's got fixed with the mind, concentrated in that way, approaching it about getting something for all the effort that I'm putting into it, or else I want my money back, and heartfulness is excluded. We've missed something. And in our, what we've missed, we've actually missed that which actually is so important. And it might be that at times we have to take a very modest, rather mild kind of uh, uh, risk, perhaps one of its mildest forms, and not be so intent on being so mindful, and more interested in a receptivity which enlivens and nourishes, nourishes a feeling about existence, a feeling about what it is to be in the moment, what it is to, to be here and now. And that generates its own interest and its own kind, kind of quality of devotion. Devotion to being on this earth, a devotion to being alive. And sometimes one could be technically very concentrated and very moment to moment and a real hardcore, diligent, concentrated meditator and not quite comprehend that's not what we're talking about. I remember no names mentioned, but I remember giving a, um, <laughs> smiles because she knows who I'm talking about, um, giving a retreat once, and uh, one of the uh, teachers in the encouragement um, said to the uh, uh, yogis that the Buddha was mindful every single moment. Being enlightened, he was mindful every single moment. And I think in 20 years of serving of the Dharma, it was the only, only time while sitting there I went in front of everybody like this. <laughs> Moved my head from side to side. And uh, people looked alone. <laughs> anyway. And, and firstly, the Buddha has never made such a claim. And be a foolish person who could um, make such a claim of being mindful every, every single moment. The Buddha was mindful to the extent necessary in order to ab abide freely and in an awakened way in this world. And it's obvious, if one, anyone knows anything of the texts and the, and, the, and, the, and the passages, one, sometimes he'd have a view and opinion like the rest of us, and with some conviction and reasoning behind it. And then when Ananda or a few others leaned on him a little bit, he could get him to change his mind. So, 
which is more than can be said for some of us teachers. <laughs> so if he was so abundantly clear in one moment, how come that this clarity had to change and he had a different perception of what needed to be said or done late, later on? Mindful to the extent necessary that one abides freely in a liberated way in this world and that freedom to abide in a liberated way allows what? It allows change of mind. But if we get fixed, as I said, too tight around in our view, meditator, mindfulness or whatever, it can be, as he pointed out frequently enough, it can be at the expense of what I'm speaking of, heartfulness, awareness of the, of the feeling life in relationship to other things. <coughs> in all of that, given the ebb and flow of things, rise and fall, coming and going of the uh, feeling life, when that begins to come together more, it gives and enables us to have the opportunity to look at life without being so much embedded in the storyline. In human beings, we're, we're, we're you know, uh, uh, um, I was just, just about to say a, a monkey species, but it's, it's such an obvious insult to monkeys, I won't. <laughs> that we so, <laughs> I mean it, and so how they can say we evolved from monkeys, I, God knows what monkeys must think when they hear that. <laughs> So sometimes in our world, <laughs> these are just asides, you know. Just <laughs> so sometimes in our world that we live in, the storyline somehow gets infected or invested. That the storyline that we're involved in becomes a reality. And we can't quite see that the story is the story. It's the accumulation of interactions, memories and present, etc., which produces a set of pictures and information and feelings and associations and projections and, and facts and all of that. And something in the human psyche builds its way and it forms the story. We say this is the, the story of my life. And out of the story of our life, we just pull out a bit, because it's a moment-to-moment -moment non story in truth, but we pull out of it bits and pieces and we assemble in the psyche our story, our biography, our history, what happened to us or what is, is happening to us. And there's a conviction about it that that's the true reality. That's the reality of who we are. And we've persuaded ourselves with our heroes and our heroines, we've persu persuaded ourselves with, through the media, we've persuaded ourselves through our own interaction that the story is the truth of who we are. And that story to get enlivened and stay put, first of all, has to have a belief in it. That is the true story of who one is. That it needs lots of confirmation from others in uh, various ways and it presents almost like a, a, a stream of consciousness embedded 
with information, pictures, images, projections, ideas, conclusions, precise and imprecise, and all that. He said, this is who I am. How is it, though, that we can attend to it? We can really observe it and give a very clear description of the story and communicate it to others as well as communicate it to oneself. Who is telling who? How come that the story and the possessor of the story are in different places? <laughs> One's telling the story, recording the story, and in some tragic cases, writing one's autobiography <laughs> while on retreat. And so the story is going along, and there's someone who knows the story. And the story and the witness of the story seem to be apart from each other. And who's the storyteller? Who's manufacturing the story? And we live our whole life, rhythm of life. Only a psychotherapist could laugh so well. <laughs> I love psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> we won't keep this cassette, by the way. <laughs> it's a joke. So it's the world of the, the story. And the story, as I say, has so much movement and diversity, we never quite, except sometimes, kind of get tired of it. But there are times when we do genuinely get tired of it, keep repeating inside of one's mind and there is a genuine wish for the story to be over with. Plenty of times. And even though we dream up new little bits and pieces to <laughs> keep it going, there's something which the storyteller knows which the story doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore the story itself is the object of attention what is the object of attention is not who we are but the object of attention and all the I and other this and that past, present and future and all that makes up the so-called story is not who we are but something has gone on which in an odd sort of way, we imagine it is who we are. We imagine that is the nature of our life, that is what we are. And if we allow ourselves to have the faith to doubt it, just enough faith to doubt, maybe the story as the truth of who, who we are begins to shrink quietly or dramatically 
from consciousness. And therefore, the talking about ourselves, the thinking about ourselves, the describing of our personal so-called uh, issues in life, the pleasures and the pains, the comedies and the dramas, the highs and the lows, the heavens and the hells, and all the in-between that makes up the, the, the story. Maybe we've got perhaps just enough potency in our being, an awareness in our being, to see it for what it is, and it begins to recede as a truth out of consciousness. It's a movement, manifesting, and that's what it is. Pictures, images, ideas, thoughts and feelings, interfacing, interacting with each other, but not the true reality. It's just that, nothing else. The teachings said to us, and speak quite frequently and, and uh, uh, vitally, of what is called the three characteristics of existence. Those of you who know the uh, Dharma world of uh, sitting and walking meditation will be familiar with uh, each one. First characteristic of existence is change, uh, impermanence. Sometimes, even um, Dharma teaching sometimes, there is such an exaggerated emphasis on it that it builds it up in such a way that it makes it into the reality. What we do with our personal storyline, we take up a theme or an idea or an interpretation of existence and we do exactly the same. And then we become the proponents and the missionaries of everything is impermanent. Everything is a Nietzsche. Everything is subject to change. And we make out of it a belief, an ideology, an absolute conviction. And we forget the teachings, the Buddha has never said the true reality is everything is impermanent. He never gets such a, a, a statement out of his, out of his uh, being. It is a characteristic of existence as it appears to human beings through their senses and through their consciousness. So whenever our mind moves and it takes up something item in the world the most obvious one and in its taking up something it has the characteristic of impermanence it appears as something and we say ah oh, this something it arises in the world it has some staying power in the world and it passes and when we attend to this, which includes our storyline, the more we attend to it, it tells us there's something unsatisfactory, not through 
fear or hate or greed or selfishness, pain or confusion, um, unhappiness or any kind of emotional um, despair or reaction. But it tells us there is something unsatisfactory in life about constantly staring, impermanence, in the face, day in and day out. We heard today with the inquiry earlier, uh, earlier today. How do we deal with impermanence? Meaning, how do we deal with change? How do we deal with loss? How do we de deal with the departure of a loved one or, or whatever? We hear of unsatisfactoriness when something arises in our life and we wish it didn't and we wish it, wish it hadn't and we want it to go, to go away. And even when we're not concerned about its arising, we're not concerned with heartfulness and mindfulness, remember, of its passing. We're not concerned with arising and passing. Just witnessing in it, in a pure witness expression of arising and passing, arising and something unsatisfactory about it. That everything that we turn our attention to affects consciousness in the moment of turning our attention to. So the expression of consciousness arises and passes in a way. What we, the object of interest, the form, the relationship, the actuality of it also changes. And is it just that you and I, as human beings on the earth, are just moved by circumstances of contact and passing, contact and passing, contact and passing, sometimes contact and delight and happiness and pleasure and love, contact and passing, pain and conflict and confusion and despair and all the spectrum in between. Is it that that is just what our life is? That's all. Is that what we end up with? So even if there's a lot of calmness and clarity and depth of awareness in the facing of change, without any emotional investment in it, I still say, the characteristic that it's unsatisfactory will appear. No matter how much equanimity, how much clarity of mind, how steady what is in the face of impermanence, in the face of change, I still say, go deep inside, even when we're so happy for change and relieved for change that can come to us, I still say, Bottom line is in all of that, in the face of characteristic existence, unsatisfactoriness will emerge. And therefore the unsatisfactoriness reveals the unsatisfactoriness of impermanence. And, keeping with the characteristic, doesn't just end there. And just to go back to the storyline for a moment or two, the confusion of the human being in the quest for the truth, which is not impermanent, which is constantly steady, which cannot be destroyed, is such that in the characteristic of impermanence, the characteristic of the unsatisfactoriness, as I said with the storyline, when we witness the story, it is just the story. Since it's an object 
of interest, an object of attention, the story that's going on, by statement, by definition, it's not self. It's no more self when the attention turns to the microphone and we don't say, oh, I am this bit of black plastic sticking out into nowhere. Well, if one's had an off day in meditation, one might, but generally speaking. <laughs> so what is it that's become so selective in which we open the attention or we witness or we're mindful of and we have no doubt in our mind whatsoever that this is not I, this is not me, this is not myself, this microphone, this carpet, this stick, this clock, this, this, this. And to something else, we call it the story. Oh, that's myself. This body which is generating some pain through the circumstances, oh, that's myself. What, what has happened inwardly that we've become so selective and so divisive? And therefore the world becomes a fragmented condition in which it's, this is me, this, these little bits is me, and the vast majority of it is not me, thank God, and, but this little bit is. And therefore this little bit, which is me, is struggling in competition with the overwhelming majority <laughs> of you against me. And we live in this. And we believe it. And we believe it. Why? For one central factor, we believe the story is ourself. And we forget that the dharma, or the doctrine, of the characteristics of impermanent apply to objects. The characteristic at going deep will show that what's changing is unsatisfactory. And that it's not who we are. It's the object of interest. And if we can get this clear, truly clear, maybe this division of this is who I am, that is not who I am, maybe it will lose its reality. And if the dualism of this reality begins to dissolve, maybe the true, authentic, liberating, enlightened nature of things will reveal itself here and now, easily, quickly, effortlessly, simply because we're not caught up in this world of atta and anatta, this world of self and not-self, and all the awful problems it creates for humanity. So in this capacity to understand, to enlighten existence, or however we might uh, speak of it, the capacity to do that means, as I said, that quite often, not always in life, the aspect of the feeling quality, not always, in association with awareness, the mindfulness, the attentiveness, the interest, can contribute 
to the sense of the experience which contributes to the understanding. So in other words, it sounds a bit long-winded, but in the, sometimes we listen, but we know the listening is here. We know it's a mental listening. We know, ah oh yes, I can understand, I can get a whisper, an indication of what you're pointing to. But it's not enlightening. It's not freeing. It's not liberating. And it seems like sometimes you think the, the feeling makes it the experience which authenticates something. And in a tradition like this, which is, is unwaveringly focused and attentive, that experience first, experience last, it's experience which matters. Because that's our life. Life is a field of experience. That sometimes it's as though not just the mind has to understand, not just the feeling and the heart has to understand, but actually the whole being. The whole being has to understand something. The very cells have to understand it. So we engage morning, noon and night in a tremendous amount, moment to moment, of meditative, contemplative practices. We look and witness the story, the impermanence of it all, the build-up of the self in it all, the unsatisfactoriness of, of it all, the delusion that goes on believing that's who we truly and re- really are. And we see it so well we can see through it. We see through it. And if we see through it, genuinely see through it, the indication of it, the confirmation of it is, it is simultaneously liberating. If one says, oh, I listen to what you say, I, I think I understand what you mean. I, I, well, I can see through my storyline or whatever. One can't deceive the depth of being like that. Even, and obviously one would not uh, wish to. If one is speaking of the language of seeing which is liberating, the understanding which is uh, liberating, the seeing through sees through. And the only way the human being knows that he, she, we have seen through is because we know it's liberating, it's freeing. Because the deception, the great deception of humanity, of thinking the storyline is who, who they are, is over with. One knows it's just a manufacturing, pleasant or painful as it may be for some or others, good and bad, so to speak, right and wrong, judged well and judged unfairly as it might be. That it's just the appearance and the association of all those mental factors and physical factors that I just referred to. So to see through all of that, to see through the characteristics of existence is liberating, is Since it's liberating, it's also the realization, the understanding of seeing things as they are. Not taking the characteristics to be the true nature of things. Characteristics are just that. 
And we meditate on this, we contemplate on this, we dwell on this, we reflect on this, we absorb this. Why? Because we don't want to live a life of mistaking the authentic and the genuine for the pictures and the stories. That if we are living, and we, since we are living, let's at least live and discover and say, yes, it's understood, it's clear. And as the Buddha said at the end of hundreds of talks, done what is to be done, lay down the burden, no more becoming of this and that for the self. Done what is to be done, lay down the burden, no more becoming of this and that. Why? One sees through the storyline. And facilities and centers and resources like this us for that. So we don't have to go off in search of nirvana, looking for enlightenment, pursuing of some big cosmic buzz or what, 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 whatever is the current fad. Look well, attend well, heartfully, mindfully. Two, see well, let it reveal. Then what the saints and the sages have said, the past and present and, and, and future, none of it's strange anymore. None of it's odd, peculiar, unreasonable or... Uh, or, or whatever. None of it's complex. None of, all of that's all gone completely out of the mind. It's as obvious, and the, as the Buddha said, it's so clear, so obvious, he said, it's as obvious as colour is to a person with good eyesight. It's as obvious, I would say, as the hand is on the end of the arm. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with... Uh, depth of understanding. May all beings be liberated. So let's have our two or three minutes of uh, shared silence, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.